Welcome. Hey, welcome to another episode of Appalachian Shine, the official podcast for the Foundation for Appalachian Advancement. I'm J.C. Swangruber, uh, one of the uh, directors and one of the founding members here at the Foundation. Thanks again for tuning in to our podcast. It's been a short minute since we uh, had a podcast episode. Hope everybody got through Thanksgiving really well and uh, got a chance to spend some time with family and, and friends and enjoy uh, the holidays and spend some time being thankful for all the blessings we have. It was a great holiday. Um, fortunately, I got to talk with uh, all of our uh, all of our directors over the course of the holiday to check in and see how people were doing. And glad to see that uh, they were all doing well um, this holiday. And hopefully you, uh, like I said, you're, you're happy, healthy, and safe. And today is December 5th. It's Saturday. So it's been a little bit since we had our last podcast. So I wanted to uh, record a short little episode today uh, to kind of pick up on a topic I said I was going to pick up on last time. But in the meantime, actually I heard from... Uh, some other folks who had been uh, supportive of our foundation in the past and uh, got an email on LinkedIn um, with an article that was sent to me um, by a you know, friend of our foundations uh, that comes out of, looks like the Pittsburgh Gazette. And I found it interesting. He found it interesting and just you know, dropped it in an email and asked me if, you know, my thoughts on, the, uh, on this particular article. <clears throat> so I wanted to read the article for you. And, uh, and see what your thoughts are. Uh, this actually came out on November 12th, and uh, it is by a reporter by the name of Lauren Lee uh, from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. So I'm going to go ahead and read through this. And, uh, yeah, if you want to share your thoughts, feel free and drop me an email, jc at supportappalachia.org. And uh, maybe we'll read some of these on, the, uh, on a future podcast if we get enough feedback on this. And this kind of hits us right here in central Appalachia because we're dealing so much with energy and, you know, especially coal, some natural gas. And I thought the article was kind of interesting. I thought quite a few of you would think it uh, to be interesting too. Pittsburgh Mayor Bill Peduto joined mayors from cities in Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia virtually on Thursday to call for federal support and a plan that would provide more climate-friendly industrial growth, including jobs, across the Upper Appalachian region and the Ohio River Valley. The initiative, coined the Marshall Plan for Middle America, was described as a proposal filled with independent, nonpartisan, data-driven research from academic and policy researchers at the University of Pittsburgh Center for Sustainable Business, the University of Massachusetts Amherst, the City of Pittsburgh, the Steel Valley Authority, the Heartland Capital Strategies Network, and Enel Foundation. Research from the initiative already has projected that the Ohio River Valley region could lose 100,000 jobs in the coming years as the fossil fuel industry continues to decline in the face of economic and environmental realities of superior cost-competitive renewal energy development. According to a press release from the city, the eight cities involved in the initiative say that they have made their own contributions to fighting climate change but they added that they need federal assistance to help their economically challenged neighbors in rural and suburban areas of the Appalachian region. The plan calls for uh, $0.1, $15 billion in federal block grants to local governments for energy-efficient measures for commercial and residential building stock retrofits and conversions and public and private vehicle fleet transitions available annually from 2021 to 2030. Uh, point two, 15 billion in low interest loans and guarantees 
for zero carbon energy generation production. Point three, 15 billion in tax incentives for manufacturers and labor cooperation for private production of clean energy equipment and supply chain development. Part four, uh, point four, 15 billion for workforce training, education and research and development of advanced clean energy technologies and applied materials science. During the virtual meeting Thursday, CB, I'm gonna butcher this name up, Chahara, the HG Zoffer Chair in Sustainability and Ethics at the Katz Graduate School of Business at the University of Pittsburgh, emphasized the importance of a public and private partnership. Partnership is the new leadership, he said. We want to be at the center of the social change that's happening and to be able to bring these parties together to make change happen on the ground. Added Leslie Marshall, Associate Director of the Center for Sustainable Business, if we don't make an investment in our community right now, then the communities that are reliant on fossil fuels will fall further behind because we know that fossil fuels are going to increasingly leave the global economy as we move toward addressing the catastrophic effects of climate change. The 600 billion would provide, or excuse me, the 60 billion would provide tremendous potential to create 270,000 direct and indirect jobs in renewable energy industries, Ms. Marshall said, and another 140,000 induced jobs could come as a result of growth in these industries. So top line, we are looking at the potential for 410,000 new jobs annually across our four state region on average as a result of this investment. Ms. Marshall said that it's a huge impact on our region and could represent 2.7% of our regional workforce. Without the effort, uh, analysis suggests that we could be looking at the loss of up to 100,000 jobs in fossil fuel-related industries by 2030 across the region. That includes about 40,000 jobs in fossil fuel-related industries in West Virginia alone, Ms. Marshall said. Mr. Peduto thanked his fellow mayors from Huntington and Morgantown, West Virginia, Youngstown, Dayton, Columbus, and Cincinnati, uh, and Louisville, Kentucky, emphasizing the importance of the private-public partnership by citing how many more or how more than 100,000 jobs may be lost if nothing is done in the next 10 years. The partnership is named after General George C. Marshall of Uniontown, who led the post-World War II investment strategy to rebuild Europe and its economic and democratic institutions. Mr. Peduto said that there is an immediate need for a similar type of investment in middle America. Referring to how the Pittsburgh region was impacted just a few decades ago by the demise of steel, he said that the fossil fuel industry, I uh, said of the fossil fuel industry, if we decide to shut down tomorrow, we will have learned nothing from 1979 when we lost our industry and how we got knocked down to our knees and families had to leave Pittsburgh and young people had to leave Pittsburgh for 30 years. We struggled to create new industries. We must not make the same mistake twice. We have to be proactive. We need investment. We need to be able to create partnerships. And instead of breaking down bridges, we need to start to learn how to build them. And uh, that is the article um, from November 12th and uh, by Lauren Lee of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. So interesting article. Um, so my response, and I'll just read my response back, and I'd love to hear yours too, because as I read it again, I have all kinds of thoughts running through my head. Um, 
let me let me pull this article back up or my email back up to uh, the gentleman who sent me the article. Uh, I think that the planning for transition, this is my response. I think that the planning for transition is a great idea and the implementation needs to happen immediately. And I put in parentheses, if not a few years ago already, I live right in the middle of the coal counties down here in Southwest Virginia. And it's no secret that technology will advance to the point that these coal jobs will be gone eventually from the, you know, for at least a portion of them sooner rather than later, most likely. Coal has already seen such a decline due to the competition from natural gas. If the previous administration's harsh regulations weren't enough to kill jobs, advancing technology will take care of that. Um, we'll, do, we'll end up doing that for us. But we have to embrace it, and the public-private partnerships are a way to go instead of just relying on government. And we all know how that usually works out. So this is a good thing. My one worry, and maybe that is addressed in these programs, and I'll admit that I haven't read through this Marshall Plan, is how we will retrain the coal miners to take the other jobs in the energy sector. That is, if they choose to stay in the sector. And will those in central Appalachia and upper western uh, in Upper West Virginia, Pennsylvania, have to relocate their families. I mean, so that would take us right back to that instance in 1979 where the mayor of Pittsburgh said we didn't learn much in Pittsburgh, you know, talking about Pittsburgh, and so many people had to move. And um, But anyway, my before I go on any further, I'll say it's a great step, uh, and I like what I read in the article. One thought I have is that our small towns and counties need to find their voice and leadership so that the economic conditions of already impoverished pockets of Appalachia don't spiral down further, but find a niche in all of this to build onto. I'd love to see some small manufacturing facilities coming back from China find their way into these small communities and counties. Maybe we'll see a future where the good bit of the manufacturing backbone of America is right here in Appalachia, but that's likely another set of goals and plans altogether, but a great article. Thanks so much for sharing. And uh, so that's, I'll just leave it at that. Um, but, you know, when I, you know, you see the, uh, and obviously you're going to have the bigger cities. I understand that. And Morgantown, West, part of West Virginia there. But, you know, there are a lot of places when we talk about Appalachia in this region um, that were part of this that were not from Appalachia. Uh, Dayton, Cincinnati, uh, Louisville, Lexington, you know, those, those areas like that, those even though they're kind of on the outskirts of Appalachia and, you know, by, you know, 100 miles or so, some of them, um, or further, it's, uh, you know, a lot of the problems that when you see loss of jobs in, uh, in the industry, in the energy industry, as all of us listening, all of you listening to this podcast know, um, right here in central Appalachia, what about southern West Virginia, eastern Kentucky, southwest Virginia, um, let's talk about part of Tennessee. So all these these areas suffer um, if you know for end of decline coal. Let's just face it. So you know my my questions were were um, one. For, like I said, I haven't dived into this Marshall Plan for this yet that they refer to. But fifteen billion in block grants to local governments for energy retrofitting. Okay, where is that going to? I mean, you can spend fifteen billion on three city blocks. Is that enough? That would be my first question. Fifteen billion in low interest loans uh, and guarantees for zero carbon energy generation production. Um, how helpful are those loans going to be if the expense of doing those types of things um, 
are still out of reach right now. Technology haven't, hasn't furthered us to the point of making it economically feasible. Because technology will solve a lot of these problems. It's just a matter of you know, how fast we're going to get there. You can't force it. When you force these things, you have so much economic inefficiency. Um, anybody who's studied economics will you know, understand that. $15 billion in tax incentives for manufacturers and labor cooperation for private production of clean energy equipment and supply chain development. I love the tax incentive part. I've always been a big proponent of things like that. Now, I know as a nonprofit, we don't get into politics, all right? So we're, we're completely out of the uh, the fray of any kind of you know, one side versus another politically. But tax incentives have been something that's that's worked. Why stop at $15 billion? That would be my first question. I mean, because I know it sounds like a lot of money. It is a ton of money. But even during this pandemic, and we've passed, you know, the, the government has passed legislation for stimulus. I mean, we're not talking about a $40 billion stimulus like we used to talk about in the 80s and 90s. We're talking trillions. So why would you stop at a $15 billion tax incentive? Why not 30? Why not 60? No. Um, $15 billion for workforce training. Um, being from central Appalachia, my biggest concern is, and I guess, you know, again, maybe it's answered in that Marshall plan. And I would, if you're listening, um, by all means, go look this up. And, and if you want to do some research and want to let me know, absolutely. Um, I'm not sure I'd have, when I'm going to have time to jump into that, that plan and read, but, um, 15 billion for workforce training. Is that only for upstate West Virginia and parts of Pennsylvania and Ohio? What about all the people down in the uh, central portion here, like the very central part of Appalachia, eastern Kentucky and southwest Virginia, southern West Virginia? Um, what kind of workforce retraining are we doing for coal miners um, as we transition? You know, because again, if we're not if we're not doing anything in this area, you're just going to create a big pocket of poverty. Um, you're just trading, trading poverty in one area for success in another. And, you know, a lot of cities, they have a lot of op economic opportunity around there that a lot of places around here do not. So that's that's my concern. Who are we leaving behind uh, in, in a plan like this? But like I said in the email, I responded back. I would love to see, uh, um, you know, one of, the, one, of the things that, well, one of the things that always bothers me is you have people that come in, have plans for Appalachia. And you don't have people coming up with plans from Appalachia. It seems like that's always the case. And we need um, louder voices, you know, here in central Appalachia that will step up and, you know, make their voice heard. And all these plans um, from state planning to local planning, regional planning, that, um, you know, the ARC is doing great work. They certainly do. But if we had stronger, you know, louder voice, not, you know, I'm not belittling anybody's job or what they're trying to do or their efforts, but loud, we, we do need some louder voices in central Appalachia to bring light on the issues instead of just being kind of complacent and saying, yeah, we're working and we're trying. Um, how do we get that megaphone? I guess that's the question. And that, that was one of the just thoughts that ran through my mind going through this article. And I think I've posted this article up on our Facebook page for the foundation. Um, I tell you, while I'm here, let me. Um, I'm going to click over to our Facebook page and check, um, so that you can go over there and read it. If you want to read that for yourself, 
and I encourage you to do so. And feel free to share any thoughts. And like I said, you're welcome to touch base, um, you know, drop me an email, and I will read some of these maybe on a next, on a future podcast. Um, but I definitely want to thank uh, my friend for uh, sending that um, to me to, to read. So it was a really good article. Um, I did not post that over there yet. So tell you what, why don't I just do it right now? Um, copy and paste. All right. So I'm just going to put in the uh, subject line here on Facebook. Any thoughts about this article? This on today's podcast. Hey, we're doing this in real time, folks. So thanks for hanging with me. Um, and uh, there we go. We're posted up. So uh, go to facebook.com forward slash support Appalachia. That is our Facebook page. And then you can click on that article. If you just want to leave our uh, comments, um, you know, something in the comment section there if you don't want to. Drop me an email, then I'll uh, I may read a few of those too. Um, and if you don't want me using your name, just say hey, don't use my name. Or I, I generally try not to use people's names anyway, unless they give me permission. Um, all right. So on a on the on an upcoming episode of the podcast next week, uh, I should be I'm going to schedule to be talking with uh, the the mayor of Bristol and uh, Bristol, Virginia. So we're going to be talking about the casino. That uh, that bill that just uh, just passed, um, and we're going to talk about the uh, economic hopes and possibilities of what that's going to entail for parts of Central for Bristol and the surrounding areas here in, the, in our part of Appalachia. So that's that should be a really fun conversation. I'm looking forward to talking with him. Um, as a matter of fact, I had him on the uh, podcast earlier in the year, and uh, we talked about what was called a 2024 plan or 20. 26 plan that it was a it was a 15 year plan of that Bristol had you know economic plan of what they wanted the city to look like you know over the course of you know some years changing of course pandemic happens right in the middle of that nothing nothing is perfect and even like that article I read that Marshall plan uh, there's absolutely nothing perfect in any of these plannings uh, economic plannings things always come up things always get in the way um, so definitely keep that in mind not that people aren't trying hard. Um, but it, you know it's uh, tough going out there, especially here in Central Appalachia. Success is never easy, but that's what we do. Um, it's it's we're a, we're a hard people, and it's and I'm proud and honored to be from here. So let me get into a topic I talked about on the last uh, podcast that I said we would get into. Uh, I talked about a guy by the name of Nathaniel. I pronounced his name wrong. Gist. His last name is it's spelled G I S T, but it's pronounced Guest. And uh, thanks to Dr. Binko for setting me straight on my pronunciation on that <laughs> before I uh, come on to today's podcast and talk about this. <coughs> but this, uh, this actually picks up, this has a little bit to do with George Washington, because he was really prominent right here through central Appalachia uh, back in the 1750s and, and 60s, before we even got up to the Revolutionary War. But um, let's jump back into that time, because the 1750s, because... Um, when, when the see the the uh, French and Indian Wars with the British 
um, finally came to a head in the mid-1750s. And the British were like really nervous, and they, they really were trying to court the Cherokee pretty hard into an alliance. And in 1754, uh, right in the middle of the conflict uh, with the French and their own indigenous allies, uh, a rising military leader by the name of George Washington, and I get a phone call and all that, <laughs> George Washington, he cautioned the Virginia governor to place all possible respect and the greatest care on the arriving Cherokee soldiers. One false step, Washington wrote, might lose us all that and even turn them against us. That's what they didn't want it to do. They wanted to have a strong ally in the Cherokee. Two key players um, in maintaining this you know, British-American alliance at the time with the Cherokee was none other than Christopher and Nathaniel Guest. Both had served as scouts and soldiers in Washington's defense regiments in the Ohio Valley campaigns, and their roles as negotiators and messengers between the British and the Cherokee Nation um, would far you know, suppress any kind of military prowess that anybody had at the time. So really a lot was relying upon them. And I was going to talk a little bit about Nathaniel. Now Nathaniel Guest, uh, he began trading among the, the Mountain Cherokee in the uh, northeastern part of Tennessee in the early 1750s. And when we talk about the northeastern corner of Tennessee, we're talking um, Smoky Mountain region, basically. We're, we're looking at that area. Um, Kingsport. Kingsport was a huge hub, actually. We're going to find out. Um, along with the competing trader uh, by the name of Richard Paris, uh, Nathaniel Guest settled on an island um, along the Fork in the Holston River. And they called that Long Island, right? So this Long Island part of present-day Kingsport, Tennessee, has been a sacred treaty ground used by the Cherokee and other tribes. <clears throat> so personal conflicts kind of came up between Nathaniel and, and Paris and um, that prevented any kind of formal trading license from the Virginia governor. And uh, it eventually just festered into a dispute that spilled over into Cherokee village politics, too. And Paris's um, involvement with the Cherokee woman, just like Nathaniel had involvements, um, you know, with uh, a Cherokee woman. It led to a lot of drama among all the traders and among the villages of the Cherokee. And so the result of this was terrible for the British, actually. Um, Virginia, they, they trusted the Virginia governor to solicit Cherokee assistance in the, you know, the growing French and Indian wars in the North. And Nathaniel failed, um, you know, with all the controversies of the traders and the confusion going on. So by 1756, uh, preparing for another assault against the French alliances, Washington wrote that he considered the Cherokee the best, if not the only troops fit to cope with the Indians, with the French, and such grounds, such grounds. And um, so he put Nathaniel back in charge of appealing to the Cherokee forces. And... Uh, Nathaniel succeeded this time and even led a Cherokee division. And uh, that was, you know, I didn't know much about the Nathaniel Guest story, but <clears throat> one of the things that um, I didn't know that George Washington was so heavily involved in it in our region here. And I um, also learned that, you know, I didn't know that Nathaniel Guest 
actually led Cherokee, it led to Cherokee division. So that was pretty interesting in and of itself. Despite such alliances, though, and um, even construction of British forts on the Cherokee territory, the relationship between the two sovereign nations remained tenuous at best. And when I when I just to get off the topic here just for a moment, when I say that um, the construction of these British forts in Cherokee territory, I don't know how much of that uh, was leading up to Lord Dunmore's War, which was just prior to the Civil or to the Revolutionary War. Now, I think in an earlier podcast, I was so fascinated with all the uh, historical road markers of these forts, British forts that were built, and part of Lord Dunmore's war against the uh, Indians to drive them out, and then eventually fighting the Cherokee, too, leading all the way up into Point Pleasant, West Virginia at a later time. But anyway, I'll, I'll get off topic there just for a second. Um <clears throat> So anyway, the, the uh, relationship between the two sovereign nations were, you know, the British and, and of course, the Cherokee were pretty tenuous at best. Um, a long brewing war between the Cherokee, the British, and the Carolinian colonists broke out in late 1759. And there were sporadic battles over two years, really bloody battles. The Cherokee, they, they sacked Fort Loudoun um, in the Little Tennessee Valley and uh, and a few other outposts there, too. The British and colonial, uh, colonial militias, though, they they end up raising uh, land Cherokee towns. British troops eventually occupied Nathaniel's Long Island there in Kingsport and Holston River. Um, while ostensibly the service of the British forces, Nathaniel, more than his father, uh, Christopher, um, he walked a really tight Blind. Um, it, was, it was really well. It was a really difficult path. Um, he had a conflicting role of the messenger, negotiator, soldier, Cherokee consort. And amid all the ashes of the Cherokee defeats in 1761, as indigenous families retreated further into the forest of the southern part of Appalachia, he returned to the Overhill settlements of his own. Or on you know so. This cohabitation among the rival nations was pretty much remarkable for someone in Nathaniel's position. He was no lone wolf trader or hunter, like a lot of a lot of backwoods uh, traders and hunters were. Didn't have any kind of alliances uh, whatsoever. Um, he was kind of, he was it was kind of weird because he was representative of the crown. Um, he was invested in the interests of the American colonists. He also found that he couldn't afford to neglect the uh, Mountain Cherokee people in the process. Uh, his decisions ultimately reflected uh, the evolving reality of life and, and trade in the Southern Appalachians and the just the, almost like incompatible demands of the inhabitants of that region. Uh, so this connection with the various groups of people would have its price. Years later, um, Nathaniel was briefly imprisoned. And he was then vindicated and pardoned as as a traitor to the American patriots because of his, you know he had loyalty to the Cherokee also so he was uh, he was convicted as a traitor was pardoned and he was accused of having served as a spy on behalf of the Cherokee while guests attempted to reopen the Long Island dispute in Kingsport a number of times uh, applying for a title to the land directly from the Virginia governor his claim failed to be realized in his lifetime. He never got his land back. He went to have an uh, he went on to have an impressive array of experiences over the next 25 years though, 
He served as a, uh, a colonel in the American Revolution and uh, setting the bluegrass, uh, settling in the bluegrass region of Kentucky as a wealthy uh, uh, land and uh, slave owner. <coughs> um, one thing that uh, about this troubled piece of real estate on Long Island brings us to full circle uh, is the probable birth of his son, Sequoia. Now, Sequoia was a very famous Cherokee. Uh, after a punishing exchange of battles with the British and the American colonists in 1776 and 1777, which included a self-destructive Cherokee attempt to destroy illegal American settlements on treaty-recognized Cherokee Mountain Territory, several of the Overhill leaders finally agreed to a truce and major land concessions. The treaty was held on Long Island, where Corn Tassel, uh, who was a highly respected elder for uh, the Overhills, uh, the uncle of Sequoia, and the would-be brother-in-law of Nathaniel, uh, made a, uh, a just a blistering appeal for peace. His first, uh, he first lambasted the settler demands for more territory. Then, as he recorded, um, as recorded by an English immigrant, he examined the divergent destinies of the mountains, be they British, American, or Cherokee. And this is what he wrote. Indeed, much has, uh, has been advanced on the want of what you term civilization among the Indians. And many proposals have been made to adopt your laws, your religion, your manners, and your customs. But we confess that we do not yet see the propriety or practicability of such reformation. And should be better pleased with beholding the good effect of these doctrines in your own practices than with hearing you talk about them or reading your papers upon us uh, to us upon such subjects. The great God of nature has placed us in different situations. It's true that he has endowed you with many superior advantages, but he has not created us to be your slaves. We are a separate people. Corntassel then wrote uh, into a treaty uh, his objection to the transfer of the title of Long Island to any person or entity with the exception of Nathaniel Guest. And this is a quote from him. For whom and themselves it was reserved by the Cherokees and desired that Colonel Guest might sit down upon it when he, when he pleased, as it belonged to him and them to hold good talks on. So sacred land, treaty-making land. Corntassel referred to Sequoia's father uh, as his friend and brother and one of my own people. Corntassel's demands were overlooked. Dallin was finally ceded to the federal government of the United States in 1806. <coughs> but a really strange thing happened. An extraordinary thing happened in 1976. Yes, 1976. The city of Kingsport, this is so cool, the city of Kingsport in conjunction with the Mead Corporation handed back the title to a section of the sacred island to the eastern band of the Cherokee marking the first time a land transfer or return to the indigenous inhabitants since 1785. In deference to Sequoia, the tribe accepted the land in the name of Nathaniel Guest. How cool is that? First time land was ever, ever actually ever given back, and they took it in the name of Nathaniel Guest, Sequoia's father. Now, how cool is that? And Sequoia, for those of you who don't know, is a famous Cherokee Indian. 
um, who was known for developing the Cherokee alphabet. And then he went around from village to village teaching this alphabet so that they could be educated and have their own newspapers and keep facts and records. And as a crazy matter of fact, um, once he went around teaching all of them the alphabet and literacy, the literacy rate among the Cherokee Nation was much higher than it was among the white population in America. Fascinating stuff, man. I love history. And we have such a rich history here in the middle of, of Appalachia. It's great. So thanks again for tuning in. I certainly appreciate it. If you get an opportunity, jump onto our website, supportappalachia.org. I know it's uh, getting near Christmas time. This year has been tough for a lot of organizations that need to raise money. Um, we never really ask unless we need a few bucks. We pretty much self-fund it. It's, you know, none of us get paid. We do all this out of our pocket and um, what we do for the most part. But, you know, it's a, a final year, a final month of the year. If you can find it in your heart to make a $5, $10 donation, we'd, we'd love to, uh, uh, you know, everything counts, 5 10 15 20 whatever. We certainly appreciate your support, and it kind of helps us keep this podcast going. And uh, we certainly... Uh, Certainly thank you. We're grateful for you as an audience listening. Spread the word. Uh, tell other people about Appalachian Shine. Make sure you subscribe to it. We're on iTunes. Uh, we are on Spotify. And if you just want to listen to us on the Internet, it's at, it's at AppalachianShine.Podbean.com. Thanks again, and we will see you down the road.